Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Good evening, and welcome to Penguin Classics Adopted for Radio. I'm your host, Gregory Hill. Tonight's selection, the Charles Dickens classic, David Copperfield. Our story begins... Is this the copy overbar a space penguin from the planet Naboo? No, he is not any sort of penguin. Penguin Classics is merely... Who are you, anyway? Tell us more about the copy overbar in his space cantina on the ice planet Hoth. Let me begin again. David Copperfield is born in Blunderstone, near Great Yarmouth, six months after the death of his father. He only thinks his father is dead. In truth, his pa has become Darth Chuzzlewit, a Sith Lord with great powers of the Force. That is not at all the case. David is sent to a boarding school called Salem House, where he develops an impassioned admiration for a boy who is both noble and corruptible. His name is... Han Solo! No, Steerforth. Steerforth Mothma, the Grand Moth Mother of the Imperial Tark, and knew it! <sighs> Later, David lodges with Mr. Wickfield and his daughter Agnes, but Wickfield has an assistant, Uriah Heep. Ah, the cousin of Jar Jar Heep from the forest planet Takodana. No. Meanwhile, David's impecunious landlord, Wilkins Micawber, is arrested for debt and sent to the King's Bench prison. Frozen in carbonite, I know how the story goes. First, the robot Dora D2 comes to Decopi Overpar with a message. Barkus is willing. He and Han Solo break into the prison and bring Micawber Papanoida to Princess Agnes, who turns out to be Steerforth Mothma's sister and his mama. Fascinating. And then what happens? Well, Decopi Overpar and the other space penguins must battle Darth Chuzzlewit to the very death, but wait, I don't want to wreck the whole story for you. No, I'm quite keen to know the ending. Tell me now. I will, but first here is a show about Star Wars and Princess Fiorina. And now Jabba the Hutt's personal trainer, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, so we are going to begin uh, with uh, Star Wars. Not about just not the regular sort of conversation that people have about Star Wars, but about people who don't like Star Wars. I'll come to that in a second. Hopefully, hopefully I can set it up well uh, for you. Uh, a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about uh, some of the things that Carly Fiorina, a presidential candidate, uh, has been trying to do to, I don't know, maybe soften, loosen up her uh, image a little bit, uh, especially utilizing dogs, the always popular dogs. And then with a little time at the end, we'll talk about kind of a Fox News stunt in which uh, one of their correspondents or their satirical correspondents got um, about 50 Yale students to sign a petition uh, calling for the abolition of the First Amendment. Uh, also, uh, if there is time, if time permits, uh, a little conversation about a calendar, a controversial calendar uh, in Glastonbury. All of that, if we can do it all. So, some of you who are listening live at one may hear part of the show interrupted. That's probably not the, quite the right word uh, by a speech from President Obama. But uh, if you're listening at eight, you'll hear the whole show online. You can hear the whole show. Um, all right. So here we go. It's time to meet the panelists. Uh, first, Carolyn Payne, uh, probably the only person who owns both a shark bathing suit and a cat Christmas sweater. Uh, that is a cat Christmas sweater, right? It's yeah. grumpy cat. It's a grumpy cat Christmas sweater. <laughs> um, she's many other things besides uh, a dance impresario and a dancer and a comedian and an actress and a blogger and lots of other stuff as well. From Trinity College, Luis Figueroa, uh, and fr- where he is a professor, uh, and uh, Teresa Kramer, uh, who runs The Cut, a magazine, an online magazine 
pain for the young adults of Connecticut, and to which we will point you at some point today if we get to the conversation about the calendar because she has some uh, special details about that up there. So uh, let us begin. So we, I got kind of interested in this notion of people who don't like Star Wars, and I found three instances of it very easily. Uh, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, says he's just not into it. Uh, Dennis House, who's a TV, TV anchor here in Connecticut with WFSB, says he's just not feeling the force. Uh, and then a writer named Martin Barham, uh, writing for both Medium and I think Fast Company, did an essay about how he just doesn't – this doesn't – Star Wars doesn't say anything to him. It doesn't mean anything to him. He doesn't think that there's any reason why he would be temperamentally disinclined to like Star Wars, but he just doesn't. And now, even though he claims he did not manipulate his son in any particular way to share uh, his antipathies, his son doesn't like Star Wars either. Um, I would like to point out that in the comments, actually, he was reprimanded by several people who feel as though he did poison his son's mind uh, against Star Wars. Anyway, uh, one of the questions would be, does it matter if everybody likes Star Wars? And if people, when people say they don't like Star Wars, what are they really saying? Fortunately, we have a person on the panel who doesn't like Star Wars that much, and that would be Teresa Kramer. So uh, sketch this out for us. Is there a why? There doesn't have to be a why. I mean, well, there's like some people just don't like things. It's not so much that I don't like it. It's that I've never seen it, which is not unusual for a lot of movies of that sort of ilk. I've never seen the Indiana Jones movies. I've never seen a lot of those sort of 80s, um, 80s uh, you know, serial sort of movies. Did and they show other things in the bunker where you were raised? Yeah, or, uh... I just watched Dirty Dancing over and over again at a very inappropriate age, basically. But um, so I've never so I've seen clips of Star Wars oddly as part of a um, world religions class I took in high school. <laughs> that is not the context of being introduced to Star Wars. Either yeah. that or it's, it's, it's what's wrong with religion right now. It was um, sort of, we studied the force as a, um, part of the uh, part of the unit on Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen clips of basically Yoda talking about the force. But other than that, I've never really seen it. And it's not that I wouldn't sit down and see it. I just don't really care. I love the Lord of the Rings movies, so I'm like on that part of the nerd spectrum, and I would watch those a thousand times over, but I've just never gotten into Star Wars. So you don't fall into that category, and I do know people who say, I just don't watch things that are make-believe, that are not real, Mm-mm. that can't be real. I mean, we could talk about later about whether that makes any sense. But, Luis, one argument for this is that, you know, that every civilization needs some kind of intrinsic fully permeating culture that, you know, the Greeks living in 300 BC, they knew all the same myths, you know, and that, uh, you know, almost anybody in in Europe uh, in, I don't know, the 15th century knew the story of Jacob and Esau because everybody knew the Bible because, you know, so you you could have a conversation in which you used analogies and points of reference and stuff like that, and everybody would know what you're talking about. And that with the falling away of all that and with world religion classes in which instead of the Bible... (laughs) People, people talk about Star Wars. I mean, one argument is there any argument uh, from the point of view of a cultural historian? Is there any argument for the idea that well, maybe there ought to be something that everybody knows? Um, yes, but the problem is that depends on the period of time and the period of time that we're in. Besides all the issues of you know, the different forms of communications and so on, is a period of transition. It's a radical transition culturally. Um, in this country, for example, um, if Star Wars had come out as a series of films in the 1940s or the 1950s, perhaps, um, 
maybe the, the, the conversation would have been different. Far more people would have been uh, into that. But I think that the, the, the cultural um, uh, heterogeneity of the United States, the fragmentation uh, in many ways, uh, is not just simply a matter of age and so on uh, or taste, um, makes it very difficult. This is a topic that we have covered in other occasions where I've been in the nose, um, that we need to kind of like Sometimes it's mentioned in the context, for example, of the political campaign, the presidency, but um, we need to live our lives more conscious of the fact that we are, we just happen to be people living in a period of a radical transition culturally in this country. So, yes, uh, it would be, you know, I mean, I, I, is there anything else that would, would, would matter for this? I don't know. I would it's just a great, say I mean, you mean is there anything else that would would sort of really just sort of penetrate every nook and cranny of our collective psyche? Yes, I I don't, I don't think in terms of content necessarily. I'm trying to think about what would be the a specific case of content. I think that what makes people feel, you know, I don't know if I'm I could be right on this, but the the analogies that you you use for civilizations in the past. I think that maybe the equivalent for us is not the content, but the media, the medium through which we exchange our ah, stories. Going McLuhan on us. I think, I think <laughs> that that is what makes us feel that we are part of a larger community, right? Now, not everyone is on Facebook. Not everyone uses Twitter. Not everyone is looking at all different kinds of videos on YouTube. But a substantial number of people, not only in this country, but in the world, participate in those mechanisms of social communication. So I think that that's what, in my, my sense is that's what makes people feel that they are part of something bigger, um, regardless of the content that is posted there. I mean, we can analyze the context later. But now, if I could just say, Colin, very quickly, because I don't want to get away this, say this, I saw the, probably you and I are the only ones who saw the first episode of uh, Star Wars when it came out, I mm-hmm. imagine, right, 1977. I did not see any other ones. <laughs> At all, mm-hmm. right? Until I decided one time, like several years ago, to binge watch the entire uh, thing uh, over a weekend. Um, and don't ask me anything about the names of the characters, what happened, because it it never really made a big impression on me. So, well, now he makes an interesting point, Carolyn, which is that I mean, so his essential argument is at this point in 2015, you cannot know who R two D two is, but you can't not know. I don't know, whatever the modern equivalent of Charlie bit my finger is. I mean, you can't not know something that's... The blue dress. Re- the, the, yeah, you yeah. can't know... the exact Perfect, mm-hmm. thank yes. you. You can't know the whole... The, what people are talking yeah, about. Yeah, but I feel like even people who haven't seen Star Wars, like you would get the reference of like, Luke, I am your father. Oh, yeah. I, it's totally permeated my culture. I've just never actually seen See, any. It doesn't mean anything to me. You saw the movie. Yes, but uh, it doesn't mean I have. I mean, I have no record. The only thing that I remember is, you know, Harrison Ford. That's a big one. It's a bit. It's really crazy. I have the only. The only thing I remember is R two D two because it was a funny, uh, you know, machine. What interests me about that? He's a droid. Yeah. Yeah. I I have not a machine. Yeah. I mean, whatever. I see. see, You see, it doesn't mean anything to me. So I I will confess that the opening. you know, skit that you had in the show today, uh, I couldn't make uh, head or tails of Well, no, this. you weren't supposed to be able to make so, mm-hmm. head or tails of well, it. I, I mean, okay, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Mm-hmm. I grew up, uh, my brother and I were crazy obsessed with them. We had all the toys, like all of them, and, uh, you know, just 
every we had the Millennium Falcon. We had you know we had all the play sets. We would just spend hours recreating Star Wars. Uh, so you know I grew up where it was not just part of my culture. It was something that. It was a world religion for you. It was, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yoda is my way of life. <laughs> but well, well, one part of the argument is, and so we are of different generations here, uh, and uh, Carolyn is the baby. Um, and so it's hard We're for the same age. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm, I'm so sorry. I got the birth order all mixed up here. Um, all right. So you're both babies. So um, – you know, so uh, there are a lot of different arguments about what Star Wars wound up meaning to people who saw it, as Luis was alluding, in real time, including that kind of notion that, well, you know, right around then, you know, moving into the late 70s, there were a lot of movies and a lot of culture out that had antiheroes and that asked some, you know, questions about the problematic nature of good and evil and 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 then the, this was sort of a big huge refresher course in in dualism in sort of well some things really are bad some things really are good some people are completely heroic uh, some people are completely evil although it turns out they have backstories where maybe they were not always evil and that that that's one of the th- that it kind of reminded us at a time of darkness and relativism and, you know, sort of easy rider, um, you know, what what the basic human stories tend to be. I mean, maybe I don't know if it does that for somebody of your tender age. Um, I, I guess I, I, I guess like, you know, I would be lying to say that when I first saw Star Wars, I obviously was like, you know, a little kid and I wasn't analyzing it on a mythological religious. Or, you didn't have a copy of Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. Not at that time. <laughs> <laughs> not at that time. I was not quite referencing that. But I think one of the neat things about Star Wars is that it could relate. You know, it's it's a love story. It's adventure. It it has, you know, the cool robots. <laughs> and it just I, I don't I remember it really impacting me with this fascination with space, which I feel like is something that is very to me, like very 80s. Um, I can remember a point where I said I wanted to be an astronaut when I grew up, which, you know, nowadays, like, I can't even get on a plane without having a panic attack. And there was a point in my childhood where I thought journeying to space would be something I'd like to do. Mm, Into a paper bag you should blow. (laughs) (laughs) Let me me put that comment about the interest in space a little bit in a broader context because I – it began really in the 60s. Um, my brother and I were totally, especially my brother who's younger than me, infatuated with the astronauts in the 60s and the, the flights of um, you know, the, the Gemini and then the Apollo astronauts and so on. And my, you know, my brother always had all kinds of figures and so on about space. And in the 70s, then we had not only uh, Star Wars, we had Close Encounters, um, and, 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 and so on. So we, there was a culture in the 60s and 70s of people who were really obsessed with the notion of space. Although I would argue, fiction. I would argue using my principle that we celebrate a frontier that's dead, that some of the things that you're talking about represented a kind of re-embrace of space when the space program was pretty moribund, like when it yeah. had sort of done all of its big yeah. tricks. Yeah. But it was, in fact, yeah. not going to be doing it on yeah. the public dollar anymore. So somebody yeah. else had to do a space program and it turned out to be George Lucas. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to maybe bring up one other thing. Mm-hmm. And this would be, uh, Teresa, the argument for it being a world religion. 
Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> or at least a use, potentially useful world religion. Because I was thinking also about the other culture that came out around that time. So there were other depictions of heroism and kind of fundamental goodness. But one of them, for example, was Rocky. And having seen Creed and rhapsodized about Creed That's a lot. That's another series I have not seen. Okay, you haven't seen that yeah. series. Well, then. <laughs> what did you do? Yeah, what did you do? Well, <laughs> well, so Rocky's problematic, right? Because mm-hmm. the first movie basically is about him, this white guy, this working class white guy kind of hanging in there, you know, against this kind of elegant, uh, you know, Ali or perhaps Cash's clay like black fighter, you know. Mm-hmm. So like the happy story is this this working class white guy kind of makes it uh, in this world that's dominated by a black man, which is kind of counter a counter counter narrative, um, and it's a little bit problematic. I, and I mean, the nice thing about Star Wars, I guess, would be it just. There isn't any baggage, right? There isn't anything that really attaches to it. It's a completely fictive universe. So you don't have to even think about something like that. Um, I'm pretty sure people will be able to this time around. I think it was a a different time, right? Because, you know, people complain when there's not enough women in the Lord of the Rings movie or something. And Mm. you're like, well... I mean, they're elves. They're not even real people, so who cares? <laughs> but so I, it will be interesting to see what people can complain about in this one. But one of the things that I have heard about this, despite not having seen it, is that there were people who are angry that there's a black guy playing a stormtrooper or something. Who clearly right? is going to convert mm-hmm. to sort of Jedihood, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I we, think we, we talked about, I was yeah. on a nose where we talked about that. Yeah. And it, it was funny to me because I had never even thought that the stormtroopers were people. Yeah. Mm. I had gone through <laughs> my entire childhood convinced that they were uh, droids like mm. or robots. Or so. I, so it was mm-hmm. – I was more mindful and I was like, there are people under I that? think I had this exact discussion with my boyfriend because I was like, wait, I thought they were like robots or something. And then he's like, no, well, isn't Darth high? Vader sort of the <laughs> – <laughs> he was like, our, isn't Darth Vader sort of the head stormtrooper? All right, we have to take a. Uh, we have to, no, he's not. But okay. anyway, um, we have to take a quick break here. Anyway, I just want to quickly read a couple of tweets out. Red Menace tweets: I've never seen any of the movies, so I don't like or dislike the movies. Uh, Jeremy tweets: I love film and Twitter enough to have created a separate Twitter account just for film, but I don't like Star Wars or the cyber hype. One of the jobs of any political candidate is to prove uh, that he or she is a human being. And that's sometimes a big lift, as they say these days. Um, So we're going to talk just for a moment here about Carly Fiorina. Uh, She's uh, kind of back in the pack these days uh, in the Republican field. Uh, But one of the things she she did possibly to improve her position was release a kind of unscripted um, uh, video full of jump cuts uh, in all of which she's sitting on a couch uh, there are a bunch of dogs. Some of the dogs seem to like her. Some of the dogs seem to want to get out of there. Um, <laughs> a little bit chaotic. She's making a few jokes about it. She does at one point make a rather pointed joke about how she says to one of the dogs, President Obama ate your, ate your cousin, which um, we could talk about whether that was an OK thing to say or not. Um, but um, but it, it, anyway, it's been, it's been touted as sort of her trying to link herself up at least with dogs. At the end, she says some people think I – I'm Cruella DeVille, but I'm really not. And then she makes a little joke that suggests maybe she is. Um, so uh, – and it and there's a little bit of a dig at cats too, although at the end she goes, oh, no, basically I like cats too. But it, it's not very persuasive. No, no, no. She's just casting a wide net at this mm-hmm. point, just trying to get anything she can. Um, <laughs> I This whole video was so bizarre to me. Like it, it's – the it, you know, its intent is so clear that you're like well, – 
Oh, God. Couldn't you just like go to a it's park like and, she heard what, what I, and pet a dog? It's like she heard the nose about mm-hmm. exactly. do, do people vote for somebody who doesn't like dogs. Mm-hmm. It's like she heard that mm-hmm. and was like, oh, well, we can get the dog voters. That'll yeah. be great. <laughs> yeah. right, so I'd like to offer a reward if I had the money. Offer a reward to the people who work in the production of that video uh, mm-hmm. so that they can do what the people who produce the earlier footage on uh, Ted Cruz and his family, mm-hmm. can they mm-hmm. share the entire the raw footage, the raw footage mm-hmm. from this Gary Fiorina video? Because I wonder how it, it could compare to the, the raw footage from Ted Cruz's shoot uh, with his family. I, I, I found, you know, to me, the funniest part of the entire video was when she admitted that someone on Twitter had compared her to Cruella Deville. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's when I really was laughing because my, my daughter watched all these things when she was little. And I, once she said it, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> she does look like Cruella well, I thought it was funny that she couldn't wrangle a puppy. Like, she literally could not control these dogs. And I know that um, Samantha B. they made a parody video of this where they're saying if she can't control. It's a fake Ted Cruz commercial, right? Yes. And they're saying if she can't control these dogs, how can she control the country? (laughs) That's how I felt when watching. I mean, like, these dogs are just. And I guess that was what she was going for this very, like, unscripted kind of curb your enthusiasm sort of take on, on this. But it was. It was just way too bizarre for me. And I did appreciate that she wore black and then was covered in dog fur. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> the story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think also, I mean, the purpose of, of a lot of advertising, it's a little bit like movie trailers. Movie trailers are often uh, used to try to create the opposite impression of what people have about the movie. I had a friend actually who used to edit movie trailers and he did the mm-hmm. movie trailer for um, the movie The Chosen. And the producer said, don't make it look too Jewish. Uh, for the movies, like entirely, you know, I mean, there's just uh, and and so I mean, and if you're a political candidate, you spend a lot of time convince trying to convince the world that you aren't what they think they think you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for Carly Fiorina, I mean, she sort of identifies. I mean, people read her as this kind of tightly wound, mm-hmm. as she said in the most recent debate, B word, mm-hmm. um, which of course has a completely different dog application. <laughs> um, and 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 so anything. I mean, I think the chaos was intentional. It's like mm-hmm. I-, I can be happy. Yeah, I think in a they very... found the most unruly puppies to put there <laughs> with her. Mm-hmm. Like they had a casting for dogs, and they found the ones that were just like gonna pee in the middle well, of the because, floor. Because, <laughs> the, because the way she comes across um, in these debates, uh, or in other, you know, but especially the debates which, which most people have seen her, um, and earlier in her incarnation as the CEO of Hewlett Packard is the stern, uh, steeled uh, person that, is, that, that has no compassion for anybody and who, uh, you know, cut the jobs of like 30,000 people uh, with a merger with Compaq and so on. So, so the, the, the idea, I imagine, that they thought would work is to show her as someone who is not really in that much control over situations in her personal life, uh, to contrast that. Um, but the, the the part about the dogs, the, the eating Obama eating dogs, you know, appears in his in his memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, made me think. Uh, we we should just pause and say yeah. that 
in his memoir, he describes a, a time in his childhood that was spent in Indonesia. And that he, I think, just briefly says, you know, that when he wasn't eating at the family table, he would go off and with just sort of other Indonesian children, eat some of the things that they ate, which included snake and something else and dog, which he said was very tough. But yeah. it isn't like there's and like a long, you know, is, Mario I mean, Batali discussion it is a, it is a, of how tasty dog is. It's a beautiful passage, by the way, a mm-hmm. uh, piece of writing. Um, uh, in the book, and uh, because he describes arriving at the place, arriving at the house, what he saw, and and I was rereading the the broader context in the passage uh, or the reference to the different kinds of food um, today, and it it really transported me back to to a person that grew up in in the tropics myself. So, but what I find odd, really is that she makes that reference in, in a way she's doing what is normally called in, in the scholarly circles ordering Obama. So Obama is the order. He's not one of us because he ate dog food when he was growing up in Indonesia, that exotic country you know, so far away. And, and of course, when people hear that, it's kind of like dog whistle for the earlier controversy over whether he was born in the United States or whether he was a Muslim or whether he was sworn in with a Koran and only Bible. But the oddity for me also is that when we look at her biography, this is a woman, Kali Fiorina, who had the opportunity to uh, live briefly in different locations in the world because her father was a law, prominent law professor and eventually more than that, um, including she lived in London, and, but she also lived in Ghana. Now, has anyone ever said, okay, let's talk about your experiences in Africa. You live in a, in a non-Western country. Um, you, you should, you know, sh- let's talk about this. And so the, to me, this is an, an irony. It is part of the problem that I have with some candidates that they try to highlight certain things in their biographies um, and, and hide others that will be very revealing. I would like to have a conversation with her about her experience being a student in high school or something in Ghana. She I, I have to say, I completely subscribe to everything that you just said, and I salute also the close reading and thinking that you're doing about this. And I had a similar set of thoughts, although nowhere near as sophisticated or detailed about it. But then I also thought, well, one of the rules of politics is, you know, the weirdest thing about you is fair game. You know, and we play it from both sides. And, I mean, Mitt Romney, you know, was satirized a million different times for <laughs> strapping his dog, Seamus, to the top of the car <laughs> to go on a trip. And, like, whatever they can find about you, you know. And, and so, yes, I think there is all that subtext there. But it's also hard to complain about it because both sides play that game, right? You mm-hmm. find the most, you know, cringe-inducing thing about the person and turn it into a snarky joke. Yeah, and I mean, I think I, I don't know. Is the is everyone else as sort of? Do you know? Like you know, there's some things that actually say something about someone. Like, what a child ate while living in a country that he knew nothing about really says nothing about you. But you know, strapping your dog to the hood of your car does sort of <laughs> say something about you. You know, and so uh, it was actually the top of the car. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Poor Seamus. He was way. He was on top of the SUV. Or whatever was going on there. But um, you know, and like. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There are some things that actually say something about you. And what 
what this entire video says about Carly Fiorina is that she's desperate to be looked this at. This trying like, yeah. way too hard. Exactly. It just like, pressed every button. Like, like if look, she could I just, pet like, cute puppies. And then if she could hair. just carry around her own dog for like a press event or something, then I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's cute. She loves her dog. But well, there's also, I mean, just sort of back to my point, you know, if somebody's trying to convince you they're nice, mm-hmm. that means that people think they're mean. So mm-hmm. Ted Cruz and Carly Fiorina basically are both doing the same thing right now, which mm-hmm. is any way they can conducting this kind of affability offensive, this charm mm-hmm. offensive. See, I'm not mean. I'm not horrible. I'm not estranged, estranged from humanity. I mean, Jeb Bush, meanwhile, has to somehow or other convince people he's kind of a firecracker, you know, <laughs> that he's like higher energy. But than she Donald. still came across yeah. as mean to me yeah. in this video. <laughs> well, what it comes across as like holding some... a puppy and yeah. being like, Obama ate your cousin. Like, yeah. don't say that to the dog. <laughs> and I, I, mean, I have a real I wish, problem with people I wish who's I, just like, I, I, I hate wish, cats. I wish too. I could I be a cartoonist like and create a short cartoon now with Cruella de Vil, with a puppy and doing these kinds of things that, that are appearing in, 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 this, in this video. It's just really ironic. But, but I mean, look, Colin, I was just thinking, um, in your column, which is from yesterday or the day before, mm-hmm. uh, which I really enjoyed, and if anyone here hasn't read Colin's column, uh, when he describes um, Trump and his cast of characters as uh, a cast of characters in high school, which I, I really enjoyed, in that column, you describe Kelly Fiorina as, quote, the girl will mortgage any aspect of her soul and or reality to improve her class rank. So She's Tracy Flick from election. Does that, oh, that's a good one. That yeah. is gonna, she's going to Tracy Flick. Yeah, so, so that's, isn't that the way she comes across in this video? Well, yeah, that's the way people portray Hillary Clinton, too. Right, so, that is, yeah, and, and, and in the case of Hillary Clinton, maybe Carly, Carly I mean, Hillary Clinton's one of those people where people say, well, if you actually know her, people who know her, she's relaxed and she's funny and mm-hmm. she's human. And it, that's, a, that's not the read we make, right? So it, a lot of it is the way we read the code of a person. I mean, I will, I'm going to go to a slightly controversial place that I did include in our, our notes for today, but watching Tuesday night's debate, uh, Carly Fiorina, as she introduced herself, she's been using things like this, that she's beaten breast cancer and she's done this and she's done that. And she said she's – and I've buried a child. Um, and I didn't know what that meant. I hadn't really followed it. Uh, I, I know now that she's talked about it a lot and I think even written a, written a book about it. But I mean the person she buried was 35 years old, was the in fact son – a daughter, excuse me, of her husband by the first marriage. When I hear somebody say I buried a child, I, I think that they lost mm-hmm. s- some young person and, and – I also am slightly troubled by the use of it, once again, as kind of a, a political collateral. You know, here's some things about me you need to know. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that, that's why mm-hmm. I said that thing about her, that she would mortgage anything to improve her, her class standing. To me, that's not a bargaining chip. You know, I mean, it's a genuine tragedy, but it, to have it couched in this highly specific way. Yeah, it's very problematic. But there's another one that she always well, repeats, which is, I, you know, I started my life as a secretary. Right, mm-hmm. and so people would think, you know, well, you know, she graduated from high school, went to get a job as a receptionist or a secretary, and then she she went and took classes in a community college, and then she went through. And in fact, you know, like I said, she grew up in a very privileged background, right? And she went to Stanford, and when she was a student at Stanford, she began working as a secretary in the summers, mm-hmm. right? And then, so so it. Wow, does she say that that is the context? And it sounds like it was someone who was struggling and so on. And it, I mean, come on. I mean, th- this is a part that I find so ridiculous about her. All right, I'm going to wrap it up here. Uh, she's polling at 2.3%. It probably doesn't matter anyway, <laughs> unless she is the running mate, uh, which is a very strong possibility, I suppose. All right, uh, we're going to have more of Luis Figueroa, of Carolyn Payne, of Teresa Kramer. Some of you are going to hear President Obama. 
Um, but if you're podcasting this or listening to it online or listening to it at 8 o'clock, you'll hear the rest of us. And either way, uh, well, hang in here. Millions of old. Hello, the name is Carly. 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 Hello, the name is Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Sarah Flaherty. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mace Windu. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff sitting on a couch and playing with ferrets, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, the Big Al Anderson Holiday Special. And now... Back to Colin. I'll say a little bit more about that during the endorsements. Um, but before that, we're going to try to hit a few more topics here since we've got the time. Um, the first one uh, is courtesy of Fox News. We usually don't go to Fox News to uh, some of us here anyway. Don't go to Fox News uh, for either enlightenment or entertainment. But this one was, was kind of good. They're calling it Yale fail. Ivy Leaguers caught on camera on video clamoring to kill the First Amendment. So this satirist from uh, Fox News went out with a petition to the Yale campus and basically sort of offered them. I mean, we'd Play the audio, but I don't. I think it's kind of you have to kind of watch the whole thing to sort of see what's happening. But he's sort of saying, you know, in the spirit of what's going on in college campuses right now, people shouldn't be able to hurt your feelings or make you feel unsafe. You know, people should be able to say bad things. So that would involve uh, getting rid of the First Amendment. Maybe we should do this. He goes out there with his petition and visits various people. He claims that in 60 minutes he got 50 signatures. Teresa, people were saying, thank you for doing this. <laughs> this is one of those things, though. So when I, whenever I see, you know, like when Jay Leno used to do the... Jaywalking. Uh, Jaywalking or Jimmy Kimmel does live witness news now. I always feel like people... I mean, I don't think these people knew they were being videotaped, right? But sometimes I feel like those people are just like, oh, there's a camera in my face. I don't, I don't know how to think. And I'm wondering if, you know, half of them were like, wait, which amendment is this? Oh, it's probably the gun amendment or something until he starts explaining it to them at some points. And then I'm, I'm just out. Then I'm just, I'm just like, oh, God. What it you- was, it's just embarrassing it for <laughs> Yale and yeah. <laughs> all of these kids. Well, this on entire this. thing has been embarrassing for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I hate like saying it, but if it had been a, a different college, I would have maybe felt like, but Yale, you, you kind of just assume that. You expect they've just come from history class or something where they are talking about the amendments and they know what they mean or, yeah. I think they all know what the First Amendment is. Yeah, okay. You know, I, I don't think there's I'll any doubt. stipulate da- to that. Comment. Yeah, I don't think there's any yeah. doubt about that. They all know what the First Amendment is. Now, they may, in fact, structure it a little bit differently in their minds. And as they're thinking about it right now, mm-hmm. the argument that's been going on on campus, and Luis may have something to say about this too, although I, I'm not quite sure how this has been playing out at Trinity. But it is sort of the notion of free speech butting up against – the rights of people to feel safe. And the argument among a lot of students on a lot of college campuses these days is that, in fact, free speech needs to give some ground. The other part of this is the First Amendment isn't really what's in effect here. In other words, the First Amendment only affects the ability of the government to control your speech. So, I mean, it's not really germane to what's going on in these college campuses. But 
almost as a you know bit of metonymy or something. There's this sense anyway that that free speech is butting up against something else, a set of concerns, and that maybe free speech isn't so great. Maybe it's overrated. I mean, I think that's what he's playing on there anyway. Yes, and I think you know this is it's a long debate. It's been going on now for probably like twenty five, thirty years of the use of hate speech in particular context. And so, how much do we regulate what people could consider hate speech in a college? Universities context that debate has been going on for a long time, uh, but I think that the, the the difference here in the case of Yale in particular is, if I remember it correctly, stems from two different sources. One was whether some African American women were excluded from entering a fraternity party, mm-hmm. right? And that doesn't involve free speech. That's different. Someone might say, "Well, that's freedom of association." Uh, well, let's debate that. Uh, and the other one was the memo about, uh, which was the bigger thing that produced this protest earlier in this uh, this fall, uh, was the memo about uh, people have to be have more conscious about how they dress for Halloween so that they don't want to offend other people. Is that con- is, is that a form of free speech? Well, I'll say in my campus at Trinity, we had an incident in 2006 in which a student, precisely for Halloween, uh, he decided to dress as what he called a ghetto uh, gangster. Uh, so he painted his whole body in dark and went to the party naked. Wait, what? Wearing, <laughs> yes. Wear, all his body painted in black, went to, to, to the party naked, holding a machine gun and some kind of a hat. And there was another feature of his quote-unquote costume that I cannot mention on the air. But the point is that this was, you know, the people took pictures, put it on Facebook, you know, the early Facebook those days. And this became a huge controversy in my campus. And now, it's, because it was offensive, it was a form of minstrel, it was, it was playing on over a century of the minstrelization, if we can call it that, of African Americans. In this context, moving it from, you know, the 19th century slave to, the, in that case, early 21st century inner city person, a stereotype. Right? So that's where the debate comes from. That's the context for, I think, some of these students responded perhaps to the questions that the individual in the, in the video were asking them for this supposed petition. Maybe that is following up on what Colin said. That is important to remember what is the context for some of these students saying these things. Although you kind of hope that they won't be so weak-minded as to – I mean I think we can all understand that there are things that are offensive that shouldn't be done. You know, I mean they shouldn't be done. They shouldn't happen. How you feel about the First Amendment would seem to me to be an issue I would expect Yale students to separate out from that. Yes. Uh, but I, I think I think nobody's in fa- favor – if you ask the question the right way, nobody's in favor of, of – like are you in favor of the freedom to make you feel really, really bad about yourself? Uh, <laughs> no, you're probably not in favor of that freedom. No. No, 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 no. I will disagree with that. I actually am. I don't think you have a right to not ever be offended or for someone not to ever say anything negative to you. And I think there's sort of – this is a very generational thing. Because there was this entire generation of people who got, you know, participation trophies and were told how special they were. And now anytime anyone says anything that they don't like, they think that person shouldn't be allowed to say it. And that person may. But we live in America and you're allowed to be as ignorant and as hateful as you want to be as long as you don't physically hurt anyone. Uh, You know, I disagree. I'm sorry to to, to disagree with something Mm -hmm. here. It's not just the millennial generation 
these were debates that were taking place in American universities decades earlier, right? Okay. A first-hand experience. I, you know, we mm-hmm. could talk about how the situation was in the 70s or the 80s or whatever, 60s or 70s. I came to this country in 1982 to go to graduate school. These were things that were debated uh, and very confrontational way many times mm-hmm. by students uh, in the 1980s, we had we had a lot. But of what demonst- you're saying is they were debated, and no, no, they're no, no, not no. being debated now. They're just being you're just you're being fired and kicked out instead of being allowed the opportunity. I to think debate. the internet has made freedom of speech a, a scary thing, and I think mm-hmm. that the kids who are in college now, when they're thinking of freedom of speech, freedom of press, they're thinking of. You're you're thinking in terms of like these tweets that attack you, or mm-hmm. you know the like cyber bullying and everything. So I think that there's a separate context that because you know I know like I look back and I'm like thank God I did not have social media in high school. Mm-hmm. I would have been so mean to people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, Luis, one thing that I will say that having been on college campuses in the late '70s, Yale went through an incredible crisis of consciousness about this mm-hmm. and conscience about this, and and produced something called the Woodward Report, which was still to this day maybe the strongest affirmation, saying, you know what, we're going to have everything here. We're going to have George Wallace here, and we're going to have Edward Shockley, the Nobel Prize winning physicist who thinks that blacks are mentally inferior. They're all going to be here and we're going to talk about it and we're going to argue about it. We're not going to shut anything down because this is college is where you think the unthinkable and say the unsayable and work those things out, argue those things out rather than letting a pernicious idea grow like a mushroom in darkness. This is what we're going to do and it's going to be painful and it's going to be hard you know. and sometimes we're going to wish that we hadn't invited this idiot to come talk to us but we're going to do it anyway. And, and to me, the pendulum has swung and the power also has swung to the mob of students who surround the master of the college. I admit that's a, uh, a poor choice of a term for the head of a college, but that's what they're <laughs> called. You know, and start screaming obscenities about Adam and saying you have no right to make us feel uncomfortable ever. And it's, there seems to be this sense anyway that the locus of power even has shifted. OK. I think the part of the problem too is that there is a double standard here. OK. Let me explain. In the last several years, uh, the federal government has pushed forward and states in some cases, colleges and universities, to be careful with provisions of Title IX, right, which was conceived initially by many people simply by trying to mandate more equivalent level of support for men and women's sports in colleges, but then it has been redefined more broadly, right? So... Under this now, depending on what you say in class or what you say in the environment in a college, you know, the, the student could file a complaint that you are creating as another student or as a professor or somebody else, you're creating a hostile environment along the issues of gender and sexuality. Right? So, and that is in federal law. It's Title IX. That's the way it is being redefined and implemented across the United States in the last several years. Right? So, we have that. And we are, we're now going through new policies in universities and training and, and so on, um, having to do with Title IX in relation to gender and sexuality. Right? But there's no such equivalent thing when it comes to the issue of race and racism and xenophobia. Right? There's no federal government that has a law or the states, you know, that the, the, the have laws that prevent uh, people or not, not supposed to allow people to create hostile environments around the issue of gender, 
right? I mean, for sex, for race, as it exists now for gender. Now, I'm not attacking Title IX or whatever. I think it's very important. I'm just calling attention to the fact that there is policy along those lines regarding issues of gender now, right? And it's federal and state policy laws that have to be obeyed and policy, but there's nothing like that for race. What is it that we treat it differently? What's the problem with that? Well, I think one reason – we have to get to endorsements here. But one reason for not treating it differently is because it opens the floodgates. For, for example, uh, a bunch of black students might really want Amiri Baraka, the former lower agent – I know he's dead mm-hmm. now – but to come in and talk. But Amiri Baraka was a fountain of anti-Semitism and, and a guy who would say stuff like the Jews were conspirators in 9-11. So whose sensibilities win? If yeah. Amiri Baraka, maybe your hero is an African-American yeah. and the devil if you're, if you're a Jew. Yeah. So, I mean, once yeah. you start doing that no, – you know, then you have to sort of say, gee, do we stage the Book of Mormon or is that going yeah. to be offensive? No, let to, me just, to, before, you know. recording because we're running out of time before the endorsement, just want to clarify so the audience here understands. I am a very strong believer in freedom of speech and I'm a strong believer of bringing to campus any people, any kind of people to talk. Right, and at least read different kinds of things too. I teach in my, some of my classes The Birth of a Nation, which is one of the most racist films ever made, 1915, uh, celebrating the foundation of the Ku Klux Klan. So I believe in that people should be exposed to all kinds of things, and I don't like to be involved in censorship. I'm just trying to explain the complexity of the issue. Um, but I, because people yeah. might think that I'm one of those who's trying just, to restrict But I think that's why you don't un- enshrine the notion of if something's making me uncomfortable, I can file a complaint. Yeah. You don't want to do that. Anyway, we've got to have time for endorsements here. Uh, Teresa Kramer, what have you got? Um, I just watched this documentary on Netflix called Best of Enemies about William oh, F. Yeah. Buckley and Gore oh, Vidal. Yes, it is hilarious, first of all, to watch them just snipe at each other in the most hoity-toity way possible. But it is a wonderful example for what we're talking about because these people actually hashed out their differences on television in front of everybody. And it's sometimes not to, not were very to, offensive. Not to a point of reconciliation, however. No, they yeah. hated each yeah, other it's for brilliant, real. It's a brilliant yeah. film. Yeah. Brilliant mm-hmm. film. Yeah, and some really great other voices that are in it, uh, ranging from Christopher Hitchens to Brooke Gladstone, all kinds of yep. people. Yeah, what have you got, Luis? All right, so uh, since we are in films now, uh, actually my endorsement is that in the context of this uh, political campaign heating up, um, that people try to take time during the break now to watch, again, The Manchurian Candidate, the original 1962 film with Frank Sinatra and Angela Lansbury. In, in really amazing and performances. Lawrence Harvey, right? Uh, yes. And so, and, you know, John Frankenheimer was a director. He's one of really best political films ever. And I think it would be good to, to, to watch it now. And the reason I bring it up is because in a conversation, people were joking that Trump is ISIS Manchurian candidate <laughs> as a joke. I'm not saying that this is what people were believing. So it reminded me, and I like to recommend now uh, the Manchurian candidate. Every time that there's a presidential election, I always like to recommend it. All right. So we see we're trying to build up a national culture. People need to know who Cruella Deville is and what the Manchurian candidate is, so they can understand what's being talked about. Uh, all right, uh, Carolyn, what have you got for us? All right, I'm just gonna go ahead and endorse ugly Christmas sweaters in general. <laughs> I am wearing one today. Uh, we'll try to get a photo up on the website. <laughs> I, I just think that they're a wonderful, just a wonderful, happy thing. They've been making me laugh all season. I've been a big fan. They're in my Nutcracker. I use them, and I just think more people should. There's tons, so many good ones out there available now. So I just how, think. How many ugly Christmas sweaters do you personally own? Counting the ones I own as costumes. <laughs> I Girl, I, well, personally, I have about. Eight that I rotate throughout the holidays. 
<laughs> wow, that's fantastic. I don't think I have eight sweaters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been so disappointed if it were like three. Four. That would have kind of wrecked everything for me. All right, I do want to quickly um, – I don't usually endorse other shows that we d- we're doing here, but I want to actually mention too. Uh, one of them is the show yesterday with Vin Baker. If you didn't listen to it, please podcast it, listen to it online. This is a story of an incredibly talented basketball player who kind of lost it all and then found his way back. And he's just amazing. He's amazing. I, I take no credit. He's just a, But he's an amazing guy in this interview. It's really worth listening to. And then do listen to our holiday special. Uh, we've already taped it, so I, I can say that it's fun. Uh, it's Big Al Anderson, of course, a rock legend with NRBQ and the Wild Weeds. Jim Chapdelaine, well, you know him from the nose. Uh, the three of us uh, are now in the habit of gal- gathering around the holidays to sing some songs uh, and tell some stories and tell some jokes. And uh, have, I think it's fun. I think it'll be fun for uh, everybody else. God knows it was a lot of fun for us. Uh, a couple of other quick endorsements. I'm very late to this party. But uh, Jessica Jones on Netflix, uh, if Carolyn Payne were a superhero, perhaps uh, she'd be a little bit like Jessica Jones. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, in, in terms of getting – fusing noir with the superhero genre, I don't think it's ever been done as well. Uh, it's just remarkably, remarkably good. Also, um, uh, per our Star Wars conversation, this will take you a few seconds, but on YouTube, track down Peter Capaldi as Malcolm Tucker in, in the loop, explain, <laughs> explaining what he thinks Star Wars is about. It's, uh, it's absolutely priceless, priceless. And I've got just enough time to do one more uh, endorsement, and that is, depending on where you are right now, like if you're down in New Haven, maybe this isn't such a great idea, but if you're like in the frozen north up here in Hartford, um, just a reminder, Northampton is such, I've been going to Northampton a lot this uh, winter. And there's a beautiful farmer's market there with incredible stuff. It's just a great Saturday morning till around one or two farmer's market. And they have fabulous stuff up there. And then you're in Northampton. You can do some shopping. There's an amazing toy store up on King Street, one of the best toy stores I've seen. I'll add to that. My boyfriend drags me there on a regular basis. And we just ate breakfast at a place called The Green Bean. And I had shakshuka, which is delicious. And I recommend it highly. You can see Mm -hmm. Teresa Kramer being dragged. Yes. There's like so many reasons (laughs) uh, to go to Northampton. But anyway, it's like, what, 45 minutes from here or something? I don't know. And it's it's like a different world in good ways and bad, I suppose. And the Iron Horse is a great place. The Alvin, Iron Horse, the Calvin. There's terrific shopping. I mean, little stores that don't exist anywhere else and nice independent bookstore. So, you know, maybe do your Christmas shopping. I mean, Governor Malloy will not thank me for saying this, but do some of your Christmas <laughs> shopping in Massachusetts. Past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy. Like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Alderbury, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. I heard that the new Star Wars movie crashed Fandango. Which is really weird because I didn't think they were going to debut Crash Fandango until episode 8.